Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Alex here. I'm not alone in this episode as I'm joined by the lovely Elise from True Crime Cat Lawyer. Hey, Alex. And this week we're doing kind of a a little bit of a different episode. We're not going to be discussing distractions or catching up or anything because we did that before we hit record. (laughs) But instead, we are going to be focusing on missing and murdered Indigenous women. Both Elise and I have talked about different missing, murdered Indigenous women cases on both of our shows. And I think we both have a passion behind talking about these cases and wanting to become more educated about these cases. And so I'm going to kind of pass the book over to Elise to drop some more education on missing murdered Indigenous women in North America. And after she's done that, I will get into my case. And Elise, you'll cap us off with your cases because you have a couple short ones, correct? Yeah. So I think a good starting off point is although we're focusing on North America, it's not just limited to these two, particularly these two countries, the United States and Canada. But I think we see just a lot of numbers here. Yeah. And so that's kind of why we're, I mean, we obviously live in both these places too. And so it affects the community as a whole. And there's been a lot of outcry from these communities about their family members, their mothers, daughters, grandmothers, just getting more coverage. I just saw the other day the woman who was jogging. Oh, yeah. yeah. Completely deserved to have coverage of her case. Agreed. But at the same time, she was a white woman. Yep. Blonde hair. Yep. It's it gets frustrating. And so I I tend not to follow those cases as closely because I know that the rest of the world is watching Yeah. And I want to cover the cases the rest of the world isn't watching, but should be. Agreed. Yep. So with all that being said, I was, I've kind of known some of these statistics, but it still hurts to hear them. So according to the Canadian Encyclopedia website, Indigenous women 15 years and older are three times more likely to experience more frequent and more severe violence than non-Indigenous women, which is just a lot. And then on top of that, between 1997 and 2000, the homicide rate for Indigenous women was nearly seven times higher than the rate for non-Indigenous women. Holy shit. Seven times. Seven times. Seven times. Wow. Okay. I mean... Talking about that other case of the jogger, women mm-hmm. are already at a disadvantage regardless oh, of your a thousand person. Yeah. Yep. And so yep. coupled on top of that, you add this layer of ethnicity and race, mm-hmm. and now you're even more disadvantaged. I mean, seven times is a lot. 
Yeah, for lack of a better term, the more minority you are, the more of a walking target you become, right? So imagine if you were an Indigenous woman, maybe you are... I don't know, you identify as not heterosexual, maybe you have mental health, substance use, whatever. The more you add on to that plate, the more of a target you become, which is just, it's not, it shouldn't be that way. But unfortunately, as I'm sure you'll get to, it, it definitely is. Right. So I'm glad you touched on that because there's been some different reports about kind of the the five issues that really affect missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And part of it is the culture of misogyny. Right. That there is. They're very, it, even if you go back to the Disney version of Pocahontas and things like yeah. that, they're very sexualized. And that creates this, I mean, it's, we see it even just, like I said, in women across all ethnicities and races, women are just highly sexualized in our culture. Yeah. But sort of these more minority women, Hawaiian women, just women of color in general can often be extra sexualized because mm -hmm. they're like seen as quote unquote exotic. Right. And so that just, I feel when you over-sexualize somebody that you're also just kind of saying that that's their main purpose and you can kind of do with them what you please. Yeah. Because you're just kind of seeing them as that object instead of an actual person. Yep. And once someone is objectified that it's easy to do whatever you want to them because you then have removed any potential of remorse or guilt or any kind of any kind of thought I guess that would make you say oh this is bad mm -hmm. right it's it just makes it easier for people who do that who do objectify to just do what they do and move on and not give a shit yeah absolutely and one of the other things that I know just in my personal coverage of these cases that I've learned, and even in law school, I took an Indian law class. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things that they really focused on was this historic kind of removal of Indigenous children from their parents yes. and placing them into white families to raise. And then on top of that, so you have this mass removal of children being put into the foster care system. But then the parents that they're taking these kids from, those parents often went to the residential schools. And so there's all these layers of trauma yeah. and just removal and disregard, just treating them as second class citizens. It's just enforcing that and continuing it just through different methods almost over time. Yeah. And it's funny because we as I'm speaking as somebody who my ancestors settled, came to Canada, right? I, my, I know on my dad's side, I'm from Norway. My mom's side, it's probably somewhere in Europe. Who, who, who friggin' knows? But we came to, we settled in Canada and we made those that were there before us, being Indigenous folks, we made them second-class citizens to a land that they already had before we came, right? So it's it's once again that level of objectification and just removal of their identity because it's, oh, I want what you have. You're not, not actually a person, so it doesn't really matter in my mind. I'm going to take what I want. And it's just, it's for lack of a better description, it's kind of a, a child taking somebody else's spot on a school bus, right? It's, oh, I want to sit close to the back where all the cool kids are and I see you're in my spot, so get out of my spot. It's no. Somebody else was there first. Leave them alone. Go sit where there's a spot left and move on. But settlers have a hard time doing that. 
And so do children, especially brats. <laughs> right. <laughs> and people are brats. <laughs> that is absolutely 100% true. <laughs> so another one of the big issues I wanted to touch on that, again, I kind of learned through my Indian law class and then again, kind of reinforced through my own research of these cases is there's an inadequate police response to these victims. But at the same time, there's also complicated jurisdictional issues that also play into that. So there's some instances where state and local police of the particular county or state don't have any jurisdiction on the tribal land. Mm. And then there's also situations where the tribal police that are on the tribal land might not have jurisdiction. Oh, that's confusing. Super confusing. And then there's oftentimes where the FBI could get involved because they're kind of the federal government's police force, essentially. Right. But they're not involved in all cases. It's very select what kinds of cases they can be involved in. And it just it's a very complicated picture. And part of the problem is There's oftentimes where non-tribal police can't get involved and tribal police don't have the resources and possibly don't have the care or concern. I don't know. But Mm -hmm. resources especially, I know, aren't there for them to kind of look for these people. Exactly. And it kind of puts them in a sticky situation because they're more times than none the first responders speaking for tribal police. And yet I almost wonder if there's many situations where they're kind of there just being, we don't know what to do because X, Y, Z, we don't know how to handle this or we're not trained to deal with this or we have to wait to see if state troopers or in Ontario, if the Ontario Provincial Police or the Mounties, if someone else needs to get involved. And that can mean life or death in some situations that could mean tampering of evidence that could mean just so many different legal headaches for everybody involved and it would make way more sense if there was more of a clear-cut path in terms of jurisdictions right and i will say a, a lot of it is just how our country has kind of treated indigenous people from yeah. the beginning they're kind of in the charge at least in the United States. They're in the charge of the federal government. And so for sure, the state and local authorities are last in line to have any kind of jurisdiction on tribal lands, simply because federal government always trumps the states. Right. And so it just, it's frustrating because there's, again, this reinforcement of distrust of law enforcement and of governmental authorities because the families don't get answers. They don't get help. Mm-hmm. Nobody's looking for their loved one. Nobody's trying to solve the case. And he said it just, obviously, they're going to pass on those beliefs to their children. And it's just going to continue on this distrust. And there's no working relationship that they can have because the family doesn't see them as doing enough or anything in some cases. Right. The relationship's already sour. And once it's sour, it's really hard to make it kind of stable, right? It it kind of goes for a lot of situations. I mean, for folks trying to understand, think of it as, I don't know, similar to if you're in a relationship with somebody and someone cheats on you, that, that trust out the window foundation's broken. And so when you hear of Indigenous people not trusting police and everything like that or government officials, it's sad to see people responding 
that aren't indigenous and don't understand what kind of complicated history that is oh suck it up it's not that big of a deal you don't you don't know you have no idea and you can't even try to begin to understand the complexity of that relationship and how bad it's gone. It's very similar to the relationship that African-American people have yes. with police. Yep. It's obviously it's not something that I personally have experienced because I'm not African-American, but I know enough people who have had experiences to understand what it means to them. When they mm-hmm. have encounters with police. Exactly. Yeah. And I understand why there's communities that don't trust the police and they teach their children not to trust the police. And you said there's a lot of criticism of that. But I, I think you're right. When you don't have experience being in that person's shoes, mm-hmm. that is literally the definition of privilege for one. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But for two, I think you and I, even though we haven't had these experiences, Mm -hmm. I think we can both take a step back and say, I'm not a person of that particular race. But at the same time, I can understand why you would have hesitation when you're going into X situation where there might be police or X situation where you might be dealing with this authority. Yeah. I haven't experienced it, but I understand where you're coming from, why you don't think that police will help. And honestly, in the cases we're going to cover today, I completely understand why. Oh, yeah. Have faith. (laughs) Yeah. So the last thing I'll touch on before I let you go is... I just wanted to kind of ask, I know that there was this big push in 2019 and Mm -hmm. I kind of know your answer just because the (laughs) pandemic happened right after this. But I know that was a big time where the prime minister is kind of launching this national inquiry, all of that. Has there been any change in your mind since then? If there has been changes, it's been muted by other news, right? And I say that In the sense of it's not front page news anymore, currently as of today's recording, right? So when the unmarked graves came up from former residential schools across Canada, of course, it was front page news. Everyone was talking about it. Everyone was outraged, baffled, confused, upset, angry. I think since then, there's just been a couple murmurs here and there, a couple coverings, what have you. But from my perspective, I haven't seen as much legal change or legislative change. I have seen more people speaking out. I've seen more coverage on Instagram of highlighting Indigenous creators, trying to highlight more Indigenous shops, Indigenous just people in general. But I think to answer your question, not as much as I think there should be given all of the horrifying shit that's gone on. And my hope is that if I do ever have children, that they live in a world where they are fully educated and aware of the Indigenous history, not just the white person's history, not just our history, but everybody's history. And it's celebrated more and it's respected more and it's approached with a more empathetic standpoint for a mass population as opposed to, I don't know, just those that have empathy and give a shit, I guess. I don't I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, it's 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 been interesting. I wish there'd be more, but I time will tell. Yeah, I think that's something I've noticed as well, just on the US side. Anything that I've seen kind of quote unquote blow up has been on the social media side and more of different 
regions, yep. particular locales, but nothing on the national widespread scale. Not to say yeah. that things can't be done at the local level, but because it's such a systemic issue that affects people from all across the country, all across Canada, it's not just these women are only going missing from British Columbia and the exactly. exactly. No, it's happening everywhere. And so it's incredibly frustrating, but obviously like we have better things, quote unquote, to worry about in the United States, aka yeah. don't care about anybody. Yep. So <laughs> yep. Unless it brings a crap ton of money and profit to feed into this capitalist wheel well that exists. <laughs> because that that's what it all falls back to is capitalism. Oh yeah. Right. And so as long as it's not in participation with that, we won't really hear much about it. Well, now that we've depressed everybody, <laughs> Alex. Oh, it's only going to get worse. Cool. <laughs> this week, I'm going to tackle the unsolved murder of Helen Gillings. And Helen's murder is a part of many missing and murdered Indigenous women cases, and hers is actually out of my home province of Ontario, Canada. As a heads up, fine details of Helen's life and case are not really publicly known. They're not. It was really hard to find information. Let's just put it that way. I, it took me a lot of sleuthing, and I don't call myself an internet sleuth for many reasons. But yeah, it took it took a lot to try and figure things out. And I might have say this a lot in true crime cases too, because I'm not a journalist. I'm just a millennial with a microphone that decided to make a podcast one day. <laughs> Many people. If I, if anyone tuning in knows more about Helen, if I missed anything, if I screwed up, please let me know. You can always email me at weirddistractionspodcast.com. I'm always up to hearing criticisms or feedback, corrections, anything to that nature. Even though information is kind of sparse, I still wanted to discuss Helen's case just to kind of hopefully breathe some life into it and educate listeners about it due to potential coarse language discussions of murder and other adult themes listener discretion is always advised you might have already picked up it's gonna probably be a little bit of a heavier episode but it's an episode that we need to talk about despite it being heavy yeah i think yeah. that there's often this hesitancy to shy away from heavier things mm -hmm. but i think in this case it's not as heavy to me just because there's such a bigger issue at play yes somebody is missing or yes somebody is murdered but at the same time what we're trying to focus on is we need to get them answers we need to find them or we need to find mm -hmm. who murdered them that's what's the focus not yeah on the murder itself exactly it's applicable but it's it's about getting those answers and that information. I think you actually touched upon this early on when you said the 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 case where the woman I, and I apologize I forget her name at the top of my head, but she was recently murdered while out jogging. Right, she was a white woman out jogging. We've heard it before. It's an unfortunate reality, and I think if we could highlight some of, if not all of these murdered and missing Indigenous women cases, as much as those cases, as much as the Gabby Petito cases, as much as the Black Dahlia cases, those kind of cases where a white woman is involved, if we could just take that mentality or that 
energy and push that into these cases as well, as well as other cases involving people of quote unquote minority status, I think we could do a lot of good in actually maybe getting some answers to these families, these friends, people that want to know what happened to their loved ones, right? Yeah. And I don't know if you've done this on your show. I just recently have kind of started getting into contact with investigators or family Mm -hmm. members. And I've just recently kind of heard that they seem a lot more willing to be kind of interviewed or yeah, conversations yeah. with podcasters because I think they realize the power of a podcast. Exactly. You know, even a smaller one, you or I, we're obviously not the big ones out there, but we have loyal listenership and it's, I'm sure for you as well, it's across the world. It's not just in Canada for you. It's yeah. not just in the United States for me. Yeah. Well, there's people all over listening to our shows that could have information or just even sharing it mm-hmm. to someone that might have information. We have a broad network of listeners that hopefully are sharing these cases, having other people listen to them, just getting to a new almost generation of people to try to listen. Because I don't know about you, but I don't watch the news. Nope. (laughs) I can't stand the news. Gives me mad anxiety. I can tell you that for free. And (laughs) to speak to that notion, I think that's a great idea to reach out to family members, to reach out to private investigators or just investigators in general. I have not yet done that. I just... And it's, it's kind of contradicting because it's, well, why would you cover a case without talking to the, to somebody that's in, involved with it? But for me, it's if someone wants to listen and then reach out, I feel more comfortable with that. And if anyone ever reaches out and says, hey, you covered my sister or you co- you talked about so-and-so on the show and I'm their family member and I don't want, I don't, I want you to take it down. I would take it down in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think moving forward, it's something I want to do. Yeah. And I just being transparent on my side, the only reason I did in my case is I'm covering it for the Pacific Northwest True Crime Fest. Mm -hmm. And there just isn't a lot of information about the victim themselves. Right. And so I sort of wanted to approach it in that way with the family, not necessarily talking about what happened to her, because obviously I can find that. Mm-hmm. pretty readily. Yeah. I want to know more about her. And then from the investigator side, that's where I can get those investigative questions. And it's not as crying, I feel, because I definitely yeah. have the same problem. And this is why I've waited so long to do it is I never want to feel I'm invading somebody's privacy or disrespecting them in any kind of way. And I would also absolutely take something down if they said, oh, yeah, it's out there. I actually had somebody reach out about information that I had gotten wrong in a case. Mm -hmm. And so I pulled the episode, redid it and re-released it with the corrections and everything, because that's what you do when somebody reaches out Mm -hmm. and says, hey, you got this wrong. And I think that's part of reframing what we do as more ethical true crime. Yep, exactly. A lot of people, I have to listen to crime podcasts, everybody else does. But at the same time, the things that were talking about and describing are probably the worst thing that happened to somebody's family. Exactly. And so it's it's walking that fine line. But it really is. I just never want to offend anybody. I'm one of those annoying people. It's, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Oh my gosh, I hope I don't offend him. I really am because my, at the end of the day, I'm doing this because I want to educate myself. I want to educate others. And when it comes to the true crime aspect of the show, probably similar to you, at least, you just want to breathe life into cases that no one really is talking about anymore, or they have talked about it and say, hey, let's talk about this case again. 
But let's look at it at a different viewpoint, right? Just being transparent on my side. Yeah. The only reason I did in my case is I'm covering it for the Pacific Northwest True Crime Fest. Mm-hmm. And there just isn't a lot of information about the victim themselves. Right. And so I sort of wanted to approach it in that way with the family, not necessarily talking about what happened to her, because obviously I can find that mm-hmm. pretty readily. Yeah. I want to know more about her. And then from the investigator side, that's where I can get those investigative questions. And it's not as prying, I feel, because I definitely yeah. have the same problem. And this is why I've waited so long to do it is I never want to feel I'm invading somebody's privacy or mm-hmm. disrespecting them in any kind of way. And I would also absolutely take something down if they said, oh, yeah, it's out there. I actually had somebody reach out about information that I had gotten wrong in a case. Mm-hmm. And so I pulled the episode, redid it and re-released it with yeah. the corrections and everything, because that's what you do when somebody reaches out mm-hmm. and says, exactly. hey, you got this wrong. And I think that's part of reframing what we do as more ethical true crime. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. As yeah, just you said, respecting those boundaries, um, because I realize a lot of people I have to listen to true crime podcasts. Everybody else does, but at the same time, the things that we're talking about and describing are probably the worst thing that happened to somebody's family. Exactly. And so it's it's walking that fine line. But it really is. It really is. And I don't know about you, but I've been so scatterbrained about it because with this conversation coming out, I mean, from the get go, I think when Christy and I started the show, we always try to be very ethical about it. And I think there have been times where in editing or looking at previous episodes, it's Ooh, that didn't, that isn't sitting well two years down the road. And that's two years down the road. Right. So I think the takeaway for listeners from this is as true crime podcasters especially indie true crime podcasters we're writing our scripts we're doing the recordings we're editing we're doing everything kind of on our own we're also learning this process too and if there's something that isn't sitting well or isn't doesn't seem right let us know let's have an open conversation about it and i think if it comes down to a family member or a friend reaching me hey you you said this in this episode this is actually wrong can you kind of clarify this more i think those conversations also need to be had too because nine times nine times yeah nine times out of ten we're also just reporting what we hear or sorry not what we hear but what we see online Yeah. And I know that you're really good at our show is about saying, hey, I read articles for this or I read a book or watched a series or whatever. And they reported this in one source and this in another source. So I don't actually know what's true because things were reported differently. And so I think you and I are both really good about saying that up front, too. And I think that's important not just sort of taking one as the gold standard because it was reported yeah. somewhere. I tend to think that unless it's in a court record or a police record, some kind of authoritative record, I don't really take it as gospel. So Same. that's just how yeah. I 
Brad that's just how we roll. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to see a lot of those discrepancies in this case of Helen. So discrepancies end once again. Not a lot of fine details of information. So I'm actually unsure as to when Helen was born, but based off what I read, I suspect that she may have been born sometime in seven, or 1976 or at least in the late seven or in the late 70s. Helen was reportedly born in Kenora, Ontario, which is a northern city within the province of Ontario, of course. According to their website, the city was originally the land base of one of one collective First Nation community, which was separated into three communities now known as the, and I'm probably, I'm, I'm hoping I'm saying this correctly, I did jolly phonics it because, once again, I'm, I'm a white woman. <laughs> I, I struggle with my own English language on the, on the best of days. <laughs> but yes. So three communities know, now known as the Wajisk Onigam community, the Nisashiwan, and the Waagam Is Bay First Nations. Apologize <laughs> profusely. I am so sorry if I mispronounce any of those. Please bear with me. Anyways. From what I gathered, Helen had a younger sister named Stephanie. The two girls were both Indigenous. However, I'm unsure as to which band they may have been associated with. It didn't say. All it said was that the girls were Indigenous. Helen and Stephanie would be apparently adopted by Wendy and Bert Gillings when Helen was about four years old. And I don't really have much information about Helen and Stephanie's biological parents, but many accounts have claimed that they reportedly died shortly after, or sorry, shortly before the adoption was made official. The two girls were raised along with the Gillings' own son in a small farm town of Sundre, Alberta, which is reportedly about 100 kilometers north of Calgary. So they were born in Ontario. They get adopted into Alberta, which is about two provinces over from Ontario. Eh, not... Probably not great. Probably a big culture shock in the sense of Ontario and Alberta are two very different provinces. I mean, we have the same Canadianisms, but they're just very different. Uh, Ontario is always known as being like city based and I don't know, whatever. And uh, Alberta is kind of the yeehaw <laughs> aspect of it. And that's just my own descriptors of it. It, it like, could be very wrong. I can't find those on an official website somewhere. <laughs> I cannot verify <laughs> that based on any confirmed documentation. <laughs> so the Gillings reportedly weren't Indigenous, and there wasn't a big Indigenous community in Sundre when Helen and Stephanie were there. By age 12, the Gillings reportedly claimed that Helen began running away from their home. Two years later, Helen was allegedly out of the home and living on the street. By age 16, Helen reportedly moved back to Ontario and resided in the city of Toronto. That's where she supposedly met a man named Jerry Newman, who was, some accounts claim, five years older than her. The two reportedly met while being on the streets, so I'm assuming they're kind of living rough. They're downtown Toronto, maybe living in shelters, but who knows? It didn't really say. By 1994, aka when I entered the scene... <laughs> 
<laughs> the two would move just over an hour west from Toronto to Hamilton, Ontario. So Hamilton is another city in southern Ontario. I actually went to college there. It has some nice parts, some not so nice parts. It has its ups and downs, kind of every city or even every town. The town I grew up in has some nice parts and some not great parts. I feel that's kind of everywhere. Everywhere. Every part, every city, every town has its... This is where you walk freely at night and this is where maybe you walk with friends. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) This is where you just don't. You just don't walk alone at night. So the couple supposedly moved into a place on Wilson Street before welcoming their first child, a daughter who was born sometime in the spring of 94. When it came to work, I think Helen may have felt as if she didn't have a lot of choices. I mean, she left home, I believe, at 14. She was back in Ontario living rough by 16. It's not really clear to me that she had an education. I was just going to say, I know that you don't have a lot of information uh, about her, but it just kind of sounds from everything you've shared so far, she probably isn't going to school. And certainly if she's away from her adopted family, nobody's probably making her go to school. Yep, exactly. And it's that time of that that generation where there wasn't a, a truancy officer right? If you just didn't go to school, you just didn't go to school. As far as I know, I don't know, it was the 90s. I, I think if you just didn't go to school, your teachers would get a slap, or your teachers, your parents would probably get a slap on the wrist. But I don't think there was a truancy officer hunting you down trying to take you to school by any means, shape or form. I don't think so. And I think too, I mean, I obviously don't know this for sure, but mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure your records are based on you being registered at the school. So exactly. if she ever even registered somewhere, they wouldn't have any idea that she wasn't in school because they had no yeah. record of her, essentially. Exactly. And I mean, she left when she was 16. I don't think she had any contact with the Gillings. So I think it would be really hard to kind of hunt her down. And it was the ni- early 90s. Yeah. Cell phones were barely a thing. No Facebook. No Facebook. No, no uh, tracking on iPhones or anything. You were just able to wander freely, and that's kind of what happened, right? Yeah. So she didn't have an education based on information I saw online, and she also didn't really have a lot of work experience. It's not as if she was a waitress or she was a nurse's aide or anything to that nature. She was just surviving. And unfortunately, you can't put that on a resume, I mean, if we if we could, I would have that from the get go since January 12th of 1994. <laughs> I have been surviving <laughs> this exactly. life, this thing we call life. <laughs> so I'm not certain as to when she would start this, but Helen would begin engaging in sex work as a form of income. And I've said this on my show, and I'm sure you probably said it on yours as well. And I think you actually have. But sex work is work. And I don't want to hear judgment from anyone about that sex work is work full stop end of discussion the end (laughs) the end so she's engaging in sex work she's trying to bring income into the the apartment for not only herself but for her daughter for jerry they're trying to be a family right i think not to get off on a tangent but I think it's interesting how a lot of people don't realize or don't want to think about the fact that sex work wouldn't exist if somebody wasn't willing to pay for it. Full stop. So, 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's the problem. Yeah. Not it, the people doing the sex work to survive. <laughs> it's probably the people paying for it, mm-hmm. which are usually the people that exploit the sex workers. Uh, steal from them, murder them, yep. rape them. Yep. I mean, yep. I've never read a case of that. <laughs> <laughs> and never, never even heard of one. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So you may get to this or you may not have information on it. Mm-hmm. Was he doing anything? I didn't. I don't remember seeing anything. He might have. Maybe being her pimp. It could have. Yeah. I obviously don't want to assume, but I I see that a lot in cases. I don't uh, see. And it's been a while since I've looked at these notes. So I I don't know. I don't think so. There's a part, there's a little part of my little heart that hopes that he was trying to work himself and just wasn't putting it all on Helen. But I don't know him personally. I can't speak to that nature information was very slim especially on him too and i think it is unfortunately the reality that a lot of times if the woman is engaged in sex work the man is kind of relying on her to do it all yeah which is really shitty but it it happens happens yeah well and depending on clientele and everything not to completely go off tangent but you can make a lot of money in mm-hmm. sex work, right? Hello, OnlyFans. <laughs> you can make a lot of money. So it could have been the situation where Jerry maybe didn't feel he needed to, or maybe he stayed back and watched their daughter. Well, it was also yeah working. Yeah. 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 Can't confirm fully, but there's some potential options out there that we just discussed, right? So it sounds Jerry and Helen tried their best to stay afloat, but unfortunately their boat began to sink. Jerry, Helen, and their daughter would be evicted from their apartment building due to being behind on rent. If this wasn't bad enough, Jerry and Helen's daughter was reportedly apprehended by the Children's Aid Society around this time. So not only are they dealing with being evicted, Children's Aid comes and gets involved and apprehends their daughter. It's You're kicking somebody when they're already down. You know what I mean? And, And I understand from a community service point of view, because that's what I that's what I work in that you want to protect the child from any potential safety concerns. But then from somebody, speaking from somebody who knows what happens in this case, it's also just unfortunate just how the the story is panning out, if that makes sense. It's, oh, come on, really? Right now? Yeah, and I mean, obviously, you probably don't have this information and you Mm -hmm. haven't said anything about it so far. But if there wasn't reports of her being abused or starving or neglected, it's she's just doing this survival sex work to get by. And yep. if she's able to provide for her child and I don't see what the problem is. If, yep. I think it's a different story if you're kind of using your child. Oh, as yeah. I'm part of that. Oh. That's obviously a different case. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're just trying to get by to actually provide for your child, why are we penalizing that? Yep, exactly. Things also, it's just a bad, it's just, it's, it's a really bad time. So on top of all of this, Helen was also reportedly six months pregnant at this time with the couple's second child. So this is just adding more stress on a very stressful situation. Helen would actually give birth to the couple's second daughter on January 26th of 1995. The newest addition to the family was born prematurely 
and would have to remain in the St. Joseph's, Joseph's Hospital for up to three weeks. So at, a week after giving birth, Helen was out of the hospital. I believe she was living rough again. I think her, Jerry, and maybe the newborn, I'll probably get to it, but they were, they were living rough. It was now the middle of winter, and being in Ontario, I can imagine that she and everybody else was freezing their butts off because winter in Ontario, it's not fun. It's, it's pretty freaking cold. There have been eyewitness accounts of someone seeing Helen standing within an apartment building's lobby to probably try and get warm. Supposedly, this eyewitness watched as a man from this apartment building, from this apartment building, physically threw Helen out of the building with force. So Helen's living rough. Jerry's living rough. They're all living rough. But Helen individually, I guess, was trying to get warm. She was in an apartment lobby just trying to get warm it's winter time and i'm assuming the building manager or property manager watches her sees her and physically gets her out of the building the claim further states that the eyewitness saw helen land on her face and this unknown man walked around helen as if she wasn't even there so that object objectification fully she's not she's not even a person she's just an annoyance in his lobby and he just threw her to the curb and walked away as if it was your average tuesday what are your thoughts on that unfortunately it's not surprising i think part of that objectification that we've been talking about when you realize not you and i but the mm -hmm. proverbial you, when you realize that you can get away with that, it almost emboldens you to do more and more of that. And obviously, if you were pushing a white woman or even just out on the street where somebody could actually see you just yeah. physically shove a woman, most people are going to be, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Like, yeah. There's still that kind of, oh, somebody like that bystander effect. Somebody else is going to call the police. Somebody else yep. is going to help her. Yeah, exactly. And, so and yeah, it just plays into that emboldenedness that somebody has. It's, they all think they're calling on each other's calling on the, on the police and nobody is. So I'm just going to keep on my merry way. Exactly. And apparently there was a call placed to police regarding this incident at the apartment building. However, I can't comment as to whether anything came out of it or not since I couldn't find it online. And I will say I, I can understand that you don't want people loitering in your building. You don't want people just staying there when they don't live there. But there are a billion different ways that person could have handled that situation with Helen. And that was probably the, the worst way. And the, the way that he did just kind of reinforces that people, people just need more empathy. She's cold. It's wintertime, man. Just chill. Let her warm up for a bit and then maybe offer her a cab to a shelter or something. You don't need to be physical. I was going to say, or at the very least, obviously she wasn't doing anything to anybody. But mm -hmm. like at the very least, if you're so butthurt about it, why not just go up to her and say, hey, you don't. You don't live here. I'm going to mm -hmm. need you to leave the yeah. premises or whatever. But to put your hands on somebody yep. is not okay. 
Exactly. So the next time Helen was reportedly seen alive was on Thursday, February 16th of 1995. So according to the True Crime Real-Time Podcast blog, Helen headed out on February 15th to a local bar called The Straw Hat, which was located at 457 King Street East in Hamilton. The Straw Hat eventually would be called Sheila's Place, which according to Google is temporarily closed down. I'm not sure if it's because of the pandemic. The name isn't as fun as The Straw Hat, so maybe that's part of the problem. That could be honest. Between 1 a.m. and 1.30 a.m. on Thursday, February 16, 1985, eyewitnesses claimed to have seen the then 19-year-old Helen enter a nearby alley with a male. This guy had been reportedly playing pool with Helen before the two had vacated the bar together. Further accounts have provided more details of the man Helen was with. This unnamed man has been described as potentially being between 20 to 25 years old, standing at 5'10", with a slender build weighing approximately 140 pounds, which I'm always, how do you know how much someone weighs? <laughs> I've, I've bluntly asked my partner, how much do you think I weigh, knowing how much I weigh? And he will be, oh, 120 pounds, buddy. I haven't weighed that in years. Right. Thank you, but no. So it, it's always weird to me when I see, oh, this person weighed this much. How do, how do you? Right? I feel in some cases you can obviously be, okay, they weigh more than 100 pounds. Oh, yeah. But I'm not going to be able to look at most people off the street and be like, mm, that person is definitely 225 <laughs> pounds for oh, sure. A thousand percent. And so, so this unnamed man uh, apparently had light colored eyes, possibly blue not really sure, and a, and a protruding chin, which I don't know if that's necessary to comment on, but it's a detail we now know, and it's maybe good to have his chin protruding. <laughs> right. <laughs> Furthermore, the Studerberly had crooked back teeth, which how do people know? Anyways, and overemphasized his essays in his speech. So he had some kind of speech impediment of some sort, uh, imp not impediment, but some kind of speech thing going on. I, I can't think of, I don't want to say it's a disorder. Almost an abnormality, but not. Yes. Yes. That's, that's not necessarily meaning a bad abnormality. It's just, yeah, like, you and I don't do that so it's, no. it's different than what most people have yeah exactly exactly so i'm sure when helen left the straw hat she didn't think that the man she was with would be the last person she would maybe see alive maybe he was maybe he wasn't it's not really clear what is clear is that helen wouldn't allegedly be seen again until around 5 p.m on february 17th her lifeless uncovered body was discovered was discovered by a local man who lived in a nearby apartment. Helen was still where she had been last reportedly seen, aka nearby the Straw Hat Club. And direct quote from the Hamilton Spectator article by Susan Claremont to elaborate further, quote, She was naked and stuffed beneath an overturned couch in the dark and dirty alley behind King Street East apartment building, a short walk from the bar. She had been strangled, end quote. Now, Helen's death had been ruled a homicide. Based on what I could see online, it's unclear as to whether Helen had been sexually assaulted during her attack. However, some have speculated that given she was found nude, perhaps she was. I did not see any confirming medical assessment being done or being released. 
sexual assault was not formally listed on the any kind of release of information but it wasn't also fully ruled out so it's kind of what we do know is that it's potential she could have been sexually assaulted but we don't know for fact if that makes sense right so it sounds the only thing you kind of know for sure or we kind of know for sure is that she was strangled yes and that she was found not wearing her clothes in an alleyway near the straw hat bar. So the same alleyway that she was last seen alive. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And she was found just by somebody that lived in the nearby apartment building. They they were just walking and noticed her. And that's also got to be really traumatizing on that person too. And that area, right? At that point, it's okay. What's Who's, who's going to be next? And as far as my understanding, there was never any concern of a serial killer it's it kind of seems as if this was a very isolated incident i could be wrong but based on what i did see in particular to helen's case it was never or has not yet been connected to any other murders in hamilton ontario or anywhere else so it was almost just specifically targeted at her yes exactly nonetheless the light of life helen brought into this world had been stolen Helen's boyfriend, Jerry, would be called to the local morgue in order to identify Helen, a task that no one would want to ever experience. And for those that do have to do it, it's something that that they probably would never wish upon their worst enemy to have to do. I, so far, have not ever have had to do that, and I dread the day I might have to. And I think for Jerry, it was really hard because as far as my understanding, they were still in a relationship. They they were new parents, right? This, this situation couldn't be any more shitty for him. Right. I mean, he just gone through all of this eviction and having mm-hmm. his, his first daughter taken away. And then they have their second daughter and now his girlfriend's dead. Exactly. Reports have claimed that Jerry made the following statement following identifying Helen at the morgue, which depicts the intensity of the situation. Quote, have you ever had to go in and look at someone you love lying on a cold slab covered in a plastic bag? Do you have any idea what that feels? End quote. He also reported, he also reportedly was quoted to say the following regarding Helen. She was a good person and she was a good mother. She's never done anything wrong in this world. I miss her a lot, end quote. Whew. So, yeah, it's it's heavy. It's a lot. And just to take kind of a step back, I don't know. It wasn't identified that she was murdered specifically because she was Indigenous, but part of me wonders, had she had been any other culture, race, or ethnicity, if this would be, if we'd be even talking about her today, right? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a sad reality, I think, that we obviously have to talk about. Exactly. To Jerry and those that loved Helen, the heartbreaking roller coaster wasn't over, though. As many may recall, Helen and Jerry's youngest daughter was at St. Joseph's Hospital due to being born prematurely. And so, backtracking a bit, I mentioned that Helen had left the hospital three days, or sorry, three weeks after their youngest was born. But the youngest was still at the hospital when Helen left. So Helen was able to leave, but her daughter wasn't. So 
technically her daughter was actually still at the hospital when her mother was murdered. Once Helen's murder kind of made public news, the newborn baby was apprehended by Children's Aid Society. Both girls would be reportedly adopted eventually. Now, I don't know if they were adopted together. I unfortunately can't speak to any updates regarding the two girls or to even Jerry as I was unable to find anything online. And there is a part of me that wants to respect that because kind of kind of to what we talked about before. I mean, yes, we're talking about this case. Yes, speaking bluntly, I don't have permission by anyone in that Helen is related to to talk about this case. I'm just doing it as my own personal. I want to breathe life into this case because I stumbled upon it. I thought, holy shit, I've never heard about this case before. How many other people also haven't heard about this case? But I also don't want folks to go searching for these girls. I don't want folks to go searching for Jerry. I respect people's privacy in that sense. If they tune in, if they listen and they want to reach out, great. But I'm just hoping that this maybe bring some closure and talking about it for Helen and for them in the long scheme of things, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of podcasts that I listen to that often change the names of children of the victims, just because like you said this is, yes, it involved their mother or their father or whatever, but it didn't personally involve them. And mm-hmm. so there's no reason for them to be named. I am, I mean, I kind of feel I already know the answer, but it is a little bit frustrating that they would take the kids away Mm -hmm. from Jerry. Yeah. Because, I mean, being poor shouldn't be a crime. I know we treat it like it is, but that shouldn't be a reason that you get your kids taken away from you. Yeah, and I, I fully agree. And I don't know, I made this comment for, I don't know Jerry, but it just... I don't know. It would be it would be nice to kind of have that information to say, okay, it makes sense as to why Children's Aid got involved. Because as of as it stands right now, it's to me personally, my perspective is Children's Aid is getting involved because we have an indigenous mother who is working in sex work, who has now been murdered. There is a history of homelessness. And yeah, so we're just going to take the kids instead of offering these people supports instead of helping them get on their feet. Right? Yeah. And I mean, obviously this information wasn't out there, but I feel if there was a history of harm to their kids, that I'm very cynical. And I know (laughs) that the, the media loves to report criminal histories. Exactly. So I feel if there was a history of violence against the children or neglect or something that you would know. We would and know. And so, again, if there, I mean, I understand if maybe we need to get Jerry some help for a substance abuse problem or something, or maybe we need to set him up with the tools he needs to get a job or whatever it is. But simply t- taking away your kids doesn't really give you a lot of incentive to, to do it. Yeah, to do anything. It almost makes things worse in some respects. Exactly. And speaking of family, going to circle back to Helen's adoptive parents being Bert and Wendy Gillings. So referring to the Hamilton Spectator again, reports claim that Helen's adoptive family didn't come to Hamilton for Helen's funeral. So apparently their claim as to why they didn't come was because they couldn't afford airfare from Alberta to Ontario. And I know there's going to be people, 
out there that think, what the fuck? <laughs> because when I read it, I was, what the fuck? I don't know. I want to give Burton Wendy the benefit of the doubt in the sense that I don't know what their financial situation was. I don't know what it is. I, I don't know if they if they were a family of means if they were struggling or what have you i will say as somebody that has traveled from one province to another as somebody that does does have a salary job it's fucking expensive it is very expensive and i'm so torn because i say that but in the same sense i'm if i was in that position you i would have walked <laughs> but it's 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 just it's one of those teetering situations where it's, I get it, but I don't, but I do, but I don't. What, what do you think? I think my biggest wanting to give them the benefit of the doubt is she ran away when she was 16. Yeah. 14. Uh, uh, 16. 16. And. Oh, well, t- sorry. Technically 12, but she went to, she came back to Ontario by 16. Sorry for interrupting, but yeah. Oh, yeah. no, you're fine. <laughs> so. Again, the lack of information. If she wasn't (laughs) in contact with them very frequently or very regularly, I could see almost this kind of detachment on their end. Yeah. And I know that that's really shitty to say, but at the same time, if that was the case, I kind of see how you wouldn't necessarily try as hard to go to her funeral. Exactly. I still wouldn't do that. I would, yeah, I I would do whatever to raise the funds, but that's my own personal thing. Yep. But I guess I don't put too much into it just because of that disconnect, not really knowing how much they kept in contact. It kind of makes a little bit of sense why they wouldn't try as hard, maybe. Exactly, exactly. And I think no matter what, we're all going to grieve differently. We're all going to respond to death differently. And I just hope that folks listening aren't too harsh when it comes to Burton Wendy. Once again, we don't, I don't know their financial situation. I don't know if they were, I don't know if they owned oil or anything to that nature. I feel if they did, we'd know about it. But despite all of this, the couple had shared their hopes that Helen's murder would be eventually solved. So in a In another direct quote taken from the Hamilton Spectator article written by Susan Claremont regarding Susan's specific contact with with Bert Gillings, quote, she was a beautiful girl, referencing Helen, of course. Her dad told me back then, she, Helen, was intelligent. She loved animals. She had artistic talent that would blow you away. What happened to Helen was a waste of what could have been a wonderful life. And for that, I'm very, very sad. Helen was very much loved here. We did everything we could to convince her of that. Helen's spirit was broken, he said. He suspected she had been sexually abused earlier in life, end quote. So I included that bit of a quote and didn't really talk about it earlier because that was kind of the only instance where someone was there could have been abuse prior to when Helen and her sister Stephanie were adopted. I don't know. It was never, I, I, I just don't know. It's out there. It's published in one of the, one of the articles, the Hampton Spectator. It could be very well the situation. We just don't know. 
right? So to kind of summarize my case, to this day, being 27 years later, Helen's homicide case still remains unsolved. The case is not considered closed, and supposedly Staff Sergeant Dave Oliniok of the homicide unit has taken over Helen's case as of recent. There has been some progress made, but nothing in grand detail, which as somebody looking into the case as an outsider is kind of frustrating because it's a little, like, you want to celebrate these progressions, right? For example, Oli Niuk and the Hamilton police reportedly have identified the man that Helen went into the alleyway with. However, it's not clear as to whether this person is a person of interest, according to a CBC article by Kelly Bennett. Within that same article by Kelly Bennett, Ali Niuk reportedly stated the following quote directed to whomever is responsible for Helen's murder. So this is the investigator making a very public statement in hopes, I think, to maybe scare this person. Quote, somebody, the one responsible, is looking over their shoulder every day. Police want to reinforce to that person that, yeah, maybe you should be looking over your shoulder. You are not safe. We will not stop. End quote. Since Helen's murder, there have been multiple community-based events and fundraisers in honor of her. This includes candlelight vigils and a successful lobby to have a light added to the alleyway where Helen was last seen, dubbed Helen's Light. Community-based funding has even been raised to have a proper headstone at the Woodland Cemetery in Burlington, located near Hamilton. I did try and find Helen's gravestone on the Find a Grave website, however, was unsuccessful. As well, in her honor, there was the creation of the Helen Gilling Society. This group, in honor of Helen, would reportedly distribute food, blankets, and clothing to sex workers in the Hamilton area. I'm unsure if this group is still functioning in 2022, so if anyone's listening from the Hamilton area knows of whether or not this is still kind of going on, please let me know so I can provide that information, kind of boost their online presence. I would love to do that. I tried looking via Google and Facebook, however, obviously it was very unsuccessful. Anyone with information is encouraged to contact the Major Crime Unit at 905-546-3801 or Crime Stoppers at 905-522-TIPS, which is 8477. There is a $10,000 reward for information leading to a conviction. So if something, for the love of God, say something. Please, it just, it baffles me that sometimes people just won't say anything because they don't think they have quote-unquote important information. Because you never know what your information may do or what kind of closure it may bring. And that is the unsolved murder of Helen Gillings. What are your final thoughts, Elise? I know I just kind of threw that all at you. <laughs> no, just thinking about a whole person's life has gone by since this case happened. Yep. It's just astounding to me. And obviously, I don't know this for sure, but I think in today's society where we have so many more cameras everywhere, so much more social media presence, those cases that happened in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, they get so difficult to solve without DNA or something physical that, that you can test Yeah, because we just don't have these other options for people. Right. And I obviously don't know the area, but it kind of sounds it was a area where people tend to mind their own business. Yeah. Yeah. To and extent. Yeah. And I, I think with the evolution of podcasting and content creators and everything, cases are so much more amplified. And you do have those quote unquote armchair 
detectives or internet sleuths or whatever that will put in so much work and effort to try and solve these cases. I don't necessarily know if that was as big of a thing back then. Once again, born in 94, no idea of the world around me at the time. So I'm just speaking as somebody who is present and fully aware of the content now being offered. I don't know. Honestly, there are so many cases, Helen's, and I would love nothing more than some form of closure or some kind of update just for those. Helen's sister, for crying out loud, 27 years without your sister, her stepbrother, 27 years without a loved one. I, I have one older half-brother that I'm very close with. I couldn't imagine 27 years of my life without him. Without right? him and then without knowing who did this to him. And what you happened know? and what led yeah. to what led to it, right? Was it, did Helen die because she was Indigenous? Did she die because she was a woman? Did she die because she was engaging in sex work? Was it because somebody snapped? Did it have nothing to do with Helen? But Helen, unfortunately, was one of those unfortunate people at an unfortunate situation, right? And until we actually planned for this crossover, I had never heard of this case. And Hamilton's only over two hours from where I live now. I went to college in Hamilton. I did a social social science-based program in Hamilton. Never heard of her name before, which is just, I'm getting chills just talking about that because it's, holy shit, what the hell? There, yes, there are so many people in on this planet and we're not going to know every single human being. We're not going to be able to know their story, know this, know that. But I think... With technology and everything out there, we can at least give more highlight to those that weren't able to live their life to the fullest. Right? So right. it's it's a very, yeah, it's a very, I wasn't kidding when I saw this was going to be a heavy case. <laughs> it's definitely put me in my feels. It's definitely sat with me for a while. And I think it's going to be one of those cases that will sit with me for a while. I might not think of it every day. Don't get me wrong. I, I ingest so much that sometimes I don't even think of myself and when I need to eat. But I, it, it crosses my mind every so often. It's holy shit. Helen was just a little bit younger than me surviving in a city that I, I have been to. And her life was taken for, for what? Exactly. Oh, yeah. So you have some cases you want to talk about. So in other words, hopefully those listening are holding on tight. <laughs> uh, yeah. I can imagine it's going to get uh, even more, more of a harsh reality. Let's put it that way. Yes. Well, at least in my cases, there is room for shit talking for certain people. And Yay. so I love shit talking. That. Yay. Because that is one right. That is one thing that I do that I may always do is when there's room to talk shit about a perpetrator or a serial killer. Oh yeah. I'm gonna talk shit. I don't oh. care mm -hmm. what I don't I don't care. <laughs> no, I'm never going to say anything bad about the victim. I'm never going to say anything to take anything away from their legacy. But I will absolutely always talk shit about a perpetrator yep. or a serial killer or whatever because they deserve it. <laughs> well, especially when they deserve it, right? You hear of cases where the perp lived a really shitty life and you do acknowledge, eh, what? Had it been a different situation, maybe we wouldn't be talking about them. Maybe we wouldn't even mention their name. They'd be an average 
person. I say that as if people are average, but we as a species, definitely not average. But then there are those assholes that exist that just take the lives of others for no fucking reason. For no reason other than they just do. And those are the assholes I should talk. So (laughs) I'm with you. For sure. So the first case I'm going to talk about is Caitlin Potts. And Caitlin was a 27-year-old who was described as outgoing and bubbly, and she had a thriving social life and can't relate, but (laughs) immediately cannot relate. (laughs) Good for her. Good for her. Yes. So she was super close to her family, and she grew up in Alberta. Her family was a member of the, were members of the Samson Cree First Nation, and she had three siblings. It wasn't really clear uh, from the articles I read why Caitlin and her siblings ended up in foster care, but they eventually did. And I think that's something we touched on earlier that with these Indigenous women cases, there's so much generational trauma from parents and grandparents growing up in those residential schools. You touched on this a little bit in Helen's case. There's actually a lot of physical and sexual abuse that happens as well, both while they're with family members, but also in the foster care system itself as well when they go to foster families. So it's not just, I think there's a tendency to kind of blame the Indigenous people for this. Yeah, but absolutely not. It was happening in the foster care system as well. And excuse me. And so a lot of the parents and grandparents of these children that end up in foster care, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of alcoholism as well and substance abuse. And so all of this is just, I mean, it's what we talked about in Helen's case. There's all these things that are going to be quote unquote red flags for CPS, child protective services to kind of get involved and try to take the kids and all that. So yeah, Caitlin was in the foster care system until she was 11. And basically her mom kind of spent the time that her kids were in the foster care system trying to get her kids back, just really work on herself to be able to get the kids back. So she did spend as much time as possible visiting all of her kids. It sounds they had pretty regular visits. She would take them to the lake. They would have family dinners together. I think she tried to be there as much as she was allowed to be, but it's not the same as your mom being around 24-7. Exactly. Yeah. All of that. And yeah, not that same interact, consistent, constant interaction, which, as we know from previous cases, can be really detrimental to someone's well-being and who they are as a person, who they become as a person, as an adult. You're inside my brain, Alex. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, because I was literally just about to say that her mom said because of the time she spent in foster care, she developed attachment issues. Oh, yeah. Because she wasn't spending time with her mom the way she used to. Right. And so her mom said she was trying really hard to work through the issues. But at the same time, I was reading an American Bar Association article that kind of talked about kids that develop these kind of attachment issues. They never really develop that significant attachment relationship to an adult. And so they usually don't have the kind of emotional and mental mental foundation that sets them up for success later in life. So you were talking about earlier, all of that history in the foster care system, this attachment issues that she's having, this is playing a direct role into shaping who she's going to be, who she is now, right. all of that. And so 
it's super important to kind of note that, but it's also just important to kind of highlight more generally for people that spending time with your kids is super important. Telling them you love them. Super important. All of that. Super important. Because it's not just about giving them that love in that second. It's also about in the future, you want to set them up for healthy relationships and you want to set them up to be the best they can be. And not at all trying to blame Caitlin's mom in this situation. Not at all. I just want to point out that this is what can happen when those things are challenged or taken away from them. So in the years leading up to her disappearance, Caitlin was involved in an on-again, off-again relationship with a man named Jason Hanatic. I don't really care if I'm saying that correctly. Hanatic, whatever. So they were in this kind of turbulent, definitely abusive relationship. So in 2014, when the couple was living in Edmonton, Alberta, the police report says that Jason assaulted Caitlin with some kind of weapon didn't say what, at the Forum Hotel in Edmonton. Jason would later go to trial on the assault charge, and he was found guilty of assault with a weapon and breaching a condition of recognizance, and then two other unknown charges were dropped. What's interesting is this whole trial that happened didn't happen until May 2017, which is after Kaylin went missing. What? What? Yeah. <laughs> that, okay. I know, I know the whole Canadian law system is slower than molasses. It's very stop, go, stop, go, stop, go. It's as someone that worked briefly in the mental health justice system, community justice system, I should add. I get it, but that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) That I don't get at all. I truly don't either. And I think it was just the delays and just all of that compounded. Yeah. And, And just, I mean... There's also the fact that in 2015, Jason moved to Enderby, British Columbia, and a few months later, Caitlin followed right behind him. So Jason was arrested at some point. I'm not really sure what for. So Caitlin went to stay at a woman's shelter in Salmon Arm, British Columbia. This probably was one of the best things that could have happened to her because she was back in school. She got a job at Tim Hortons. Then, of course, she got back together with Jason. Just that typical on-again, off-again that we see so much. Yeah. And I I will say they did get back together, but Caitlin was living with a roommate that she met at the woman's shelter instead of Jason. So at least there was that. Yeah. And the relationship sounds toxic, for lack of a better term. And in those relationships, what we know from previous cases and from education, what have you, those are the hardest to leave. Toxic, abusive relationships are the hardest to leave for a plethora of different reasons. And so I don't I don't judge her for not leaving because I get it. Hell, it, it, it you want to hope that the person will change all the time. You do. And then I think there's also this layer of the possibility that she might not have known how toxic and abusive this was. Yep. Like has of yeah, just yeah. all the issues that she had had growing up. Yeah. I think there's that cloud also on top of it. And so it's it's you said you you want to keep hoping the best. I mean, I think deep down everybody really oh. hopes that there's still good and everyone out there yeah they hope the person that they love is not a piece of shit like exactly i think think that's kind of a common (laughs) mentality we all have i don't think we wake up in the morning be like oh wow i really hope that 
the person I love so much is going to be a piece of shit. No, no one. And if you do, I have questions. <laughs> Please <laughs> help. Yeah. Please get therapy. <laughs> but in her, in her specific situation, I get it. Yeah. I get it. Makes sense. So that brings us to February of 2016, specifically the 21st when Caitlin Potts was last seen. So there's surveillance footage from that day showing Caitlin entering either the Orchard Park Mall or specifically the Hudson's Bay store in, is it Kulana? Is that how you say it? I'm going to say Kulana. I'm <laughs> going to be up for an honest. I've never been to BC. I'm not going to pretend I know BC very well. So I think you're saying it wonderfully. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if anyone has clarifications, uh, let us know. <laughs> yes, please let me know. <laughs> So she was seen around 1.30, and in the video, she was alone, and nothing really appeared to be out of the ordinary. She was wearing a three-quarter length black jacket with a hood. She had light-colored pants, and then she had brown or black winter boots. You couldn't quite tell from the surveillance. They were dark. They kind of looked like Uggs. So you can see her carrying a white cell phone and then a a light brown leather handbag or purse. It's not quite clear how big it was, but it was definitely some kind of handbag or purse. So her last official whereabouts is unknown, but the 21st was not the last time that her family heard from her. Oh, okay. Yeah. Super weird. So on the morning of February 22nd, Caitlin sent a Facebook message to her sister, Cody. Cody was still living in Edmonton at the time, which is about nine and a half hours away from where she was in BC. Right. Which is pretty far. I mean, it's not. It's far, far. It's like. Yeah. And I always find this interesting. So in the States, you could literally drive an hour and be in a different state. No problem. Which Every state has its own little spice of, I don't know, it's its own living situation. Anyways, in Canada, if you drive an hour anywhere, you're still in the same province. (laughs) Our provinces are so big in comparison, right? So nine hours to drive from one province to another is, is it's still a lot. That's still a good chunk of time to drive, right? Yeah. I mean, you were talking about before Helen moving from this province over here, then moving two provinces over. Over, yeah. And he's not walking. <laughs> yeah, and every every province and every state, I think what I was trying to say earlier is has its own different flavor of the world behind it, right? Mm-hmm. I said before, Alberta, to us people that live in Ontario, is kind of a yeehaw state because they have the Calgary Stampede. They have the oil pipeline stuff. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't live there. <laughs> and Ontario is known as this snobby city-based province because we have Toronto and Ottawa, right? So I get it, right? It's it's different everywhere you go. It's kind of the States. So it's still a hike, right? I mean, if I drive nine hours south of Ontario, I've already hit two states and a province. Right. And I think the the biggest thing is that you're not, if something's happened to your sister, your sister needs help, you're not going to be able to be there right away. She doesn't live around the corner from you. Oh, No, and yeah, and if you're not with authorities, police, anything like that, it's not like you have sirens. You're still going to have to wait in traffic. Right. So a nine-hour commute could be more unless you have some backup. Yeah, so she gets this text, and so Caitlin tells, or this Facebook message, and Caitlin tells Cody that she had texted Jason while she was upset, she meaning Caitlin, 
because Jason owed her money. So for whatever reason, Caitlin then told her sister Cody that she was going to go to Calgary, but she didn't say why or for how long. All she told Cody was that she'd found a ride on Kijiji, which kind of sounds Canadian Craigslist. It is. It very much is. Yes. And yes, it is very sketchy. Okay. That's what I pictured in my mind, and I'm glad you confirmed that. (laughs) So the last thing that was included in Caitlin's Facebook message to her sister was that she'd, quote, be coming back that evening for sure, end quote. Now, I'm not super familiar with Canada, so I used Google Maps. Nice. (laughs) I do that too. Don't worry. Very technical. Yep. Mm Mm-hmm. So using Google Maps, it's about five and a half hours one way from Enderby, British Columbia to Calgary, Alberta. So a round trip without doing anything in Calgary would be 11 hours. That's just driving, not doing anything. No stops, nothing. That is straight balls to the wall. You are in your car and you're not stopping. Yeah, that's you driving there, stopping, turning around and coming back. Yeah. So depending on when she left, there wouldn't be a lot of time for her to do whatever she planned to do in Calgary if she was also supposed to be back that night. Yeah, doesn't really make sense. Super weird to me. I mean, obviously not unfeasible or unheard of, but just really weird because it's such a long distance. It's not she's going an hour away and then coming back. Yeah, exactly. She sent this message to her sister, Cody. She sent a similar message to her roommate about finding a ride to Calgary on Kijiji. But after those Facebook messages, Caitlin's family and her roommate never heard from Caitlin again. You might get to it, but to me, a red flag is coming up because it sounds somebody else is on her Facebook sending these messages to try to eliminate any suspicion. And that's definitely the vibe I got. Yep. Okay. Again, I think that maybe that plays into this kind of weird time constraint too, because if you're just trying to cover your tracks and not necessarily thinking about the lo- the logical pieces of it, the logistics, you aren't going to stop and think, okay, wait, this doesn't actually make sense because it's this long to drive from here to there. There's no way I could be back tonight unless we're talking about the wee hours of the morning or something. Yeah. And you're driving a car that goes very, very fast. Yeah, and apparently gets good gas mileage because you're not stopping. Yeah, exactly. And you're also hoping that there's no police out to try and pull you. There's no traffic. Yeah. Yeah, so many, no deer, nothing to hit. Because especially the more west you get, I, I drove once in Saskatchewan, and I swear to God, within the first two hours, I saw so many deer just running across the highway it's oh my god (laughs) it's it it's very scary it's very scary as a driver so it just it's it it's not making sense to me yeah obviously we hear so often it was extremely out of character for caitlin to be out of touch with her family and so they filed a missing persons report uh caitlin's mom specifically with the vernon north okanagan rcmp on march 1st of 2016 so this is already a week or so mm. after she yep. went missing. And then 20 days after Caitlin's mom went to the RCMP, so we're now a month after she's been seen, the RCMP sent out an official alert on their website about Caitlin's disappearance. A full-ass month after? 
Why? What's the fucking holdup? Was their internet broken? Was <laughs> did a deer run into the electricity pole or something? And then they it took them a month to get their internet. What? I what couldn't find anything, and there was nothing noted about any kind of investigation or anything going on in those 20 days between when her mom comes and reports her missing and then they finally send something out on their website or whatever. I'm going to go out on a limb here because she wasn't because yeah, she, because she wasn't a white female with blonde hair and blue eyes, she more than likely wasn't top priority. Correct. Yeah, which is unfortunately the scenario for a lot of missing murder indigenous cases and for other other folks black women a aapi folks mm-hmm. even men of color as yeah well. uh, yeah i don't think it's talked about as often either that because i think a lot of times we think oh men can stand up yeah. for themselves and all of that but, but it's still still we should still cover those cases because they're not getting the coverage they need no. so we kind of deduced just because those Facebook messages say she planned to go to Calgary. The RCMP don't think she actually ever left the Okanagan area. There were allegedly sightings of her in Calgary, but nothing was substantiated. I mean, I think we often see people just trying to think that they're quote unquote being helpful. Oh, I saw so-and-so at the... Yeah, yeah. But without substantiation, I'm not going to believe that. So the RCMP media relations officer has publicly stated that they believe Caitlin was likely murdered. And most people believe that whoever murdered her sent those Facebook messages to her sister and to her roommate to kind of cover their tracks. So in June of 2016, this is a couple months after the missing persons report, several indigenous groups led their own searches at the request of Caitlin's mother, Priscilla. They searched areas of Enderby, Mabel Lake, Grindrod, Grindrod, and along the Shuswap River. Unfortunately, they didn't find Caitlin, nor did they find any evidence related to her disappearance and murder. When the RCMP released the surveillance footage of Caitlin to the public, In April 2017, they also publicly reclassified her case to suspected foul play. And according to the RCMP, the case is still active as of 2017. That was kind of the last big update that I could find. But her disappearance and likely murder remains unsolved. Okay. So what about Caitlin's boyfriend, Jason? What about Jason? Tell me about Jason. Well, you better get out your real sad violin because it's oh. about to get real sad for Jason. Really? Okay. Just okay. claims he's been treated unfairly by investigators. Oh, fuck off. Oh, fuck off. I'm I feel, sorry. I like, told you to pull out your violin. <laughs> I mean, it could. Okay. I I don't know if you're able to answer this. Is Jason indigenous? Do we know that? I don't know. Okay. But I got the sense not. Okay. Because I will say, hypothetically, if Jason is Indigenous, and another hypothetical, if he isn't responsible, then I could see him being potentially targeted and just ridiculed and God knows what else by police. I I could see that. If he's not, though... 
if he's not indigenous. I have a heart. I just, I don't know, there's something in the pit of my stomach that's saying something's up and it's not in Jason's favor. But that's just me. That's just, that's just my two cents. And also, he can kick rocks. <laughs> exactly. And you're not going to kick him. Oh, yay. Oh, yay. <laughs> so he's been treated unfairly. <laughs> and <laughs> this jerk off claims he was never actually Caitlin's boyfriend and that she never lived with him, although he did concede that she would occasionally stay with him. Okay. <laughs> Hi, Jason. Uh, thanks for your information. Seems a little uh, contradictory to literally everybody else's information, but yeah. Oh, don't okay. worry. He has, he has a few more tidbits to share. Oh, of course he does. So, he couldn't remember the last time he saw or spoke with Caitlin, <clears throat> which, okay, maybe. Mm -hmm. But the dumbest thing he said was he claimed that Caitlin was working as an escort at the time of her disappearance. And as far as I could tell, there's literally no proof of that whatsoever. Wasn't she working at Tim Hortons? Exactly. She was working at Tim Hortons. She was going to school. That's what she was doing. She might be escorting Timbits from behind the counter into the Timbit box, buddy. But it doesn't sound to me that she is doing what you think she was doing. Yeah. It, I just, I can't stand when people... Even if a victim was a shitty person and did shitty things, yeah, they're dead now or they're missing now, and there's no need to throw mud on the situation. Well, yeah, and to me, it just seems the way he's responding, it's, oh, I didn't do anything wrong, but she was an escort and she was really sketchy. It's trying to move this judgmental light from him to her. That's what I'm getting. That's the vibe I'm getting from him is I'm not a shitty person, but she, she should be the one you should really consider as the problem here. Okay, Jason. I, mm, cool. <laughs> you guys aren't going to be friends anytime soon. Absolutely not. <laughs> so despite all of Jason's nonsense, the RCMP won't say whether or not he's actually a suspect or a person of interest in her disappearance. Yeah, and I wonder, I don't know if that's a specific Canadian thing or not, but it might be. It might just be the way, and I, I say this as somebody who obviously doesn't have contact with the RCMP on a regular basis or OPP or whatever. I think they do that just so that they don't tip off the suspect. I mean, Homeboy probably knows he's in hot water right yeah i like i think for me if because it's not always the case but there's definitely cases that we covered that they'll actually specifically say so and so has been cleared yeah and that to me is way more telling than whether or not someone is a suspect or a person of interest yeah i think not everybody in the world but everybody kind of around this person that goes missing or is murdered is a suspect or a person of interest until you mm -hmm. can't clear them exactly you 
And so I think that's more important to kind of note is that they haven't actually said he's ruled out completely. Yep. Yeah. And I think because they also haven't said that, there isn't room for doubt that he isn't a suspect yet. There could be, but they're not alluding to it. They're not saying, oh, yeah, we've completely cleared him. Because I feel if they had completely cleared him, we wouldn't be having this discussion. Exactly. Right. Mm. I also found it interesting. Helen was murdered in February. Your girl went missing in February, too. Mm-hmm. Please don't tell me the other cases you're covering also go missing in February or murder in February. Or else I'm going to suspect <laughs> there's something wrong with the month of February when it comes to these cases. I don't think so. Okay. It could just be a weird coincidence that. Yes. A weird synchronicity for these two. I think it's just these two. Okay. Okay. <laughs> That's, that is weird though. As soon as you said February, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Pardon? She went missing when? (laughs) So the major crime unit is in charge of Caitlin's case. And if you have any information about her disappearance, please contact 1-877-987-8477. The last case I'm going to share today is the disappearance of Angeline Pete. So Angeline was born at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver, British Columbia on December 5th, 1982, weighing in at six pounds, six ounces. She had a head of thick black hair and chubby cheeks, and I could literally be describing myself also. So (laughs) I can relate to. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Those are the cases that also pull at your heartstrings just a little bit much. It's oh. Oh, too much, too much inflation. Yeah, and this one's going to be my heavier one, I think. I mean, the last one was not great, obviously, but no. Angeline's mom, Molly, was just 16 years old when she gave birth to Angeline. Right. And Molly's dad, so Angeline's grandpa, was a logger and a fisherman, and Molly's parents... Angeline's grandparents attended residential schools and they eventually became alcoholics. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Molly grew up in social housing and she had a really tough home life. So many of the cases we talk about in the in the indigenous community, Molly started hanging out with a rough crowd. She was smoking pot, she was drinking, and there were some reports that she might have used harder drugs as well. She also struggled with her own alcohol addiction as well, even after Angeline was born. And so, unfortunately, she did lose custody of Angeline, and Angeline got put into foster care. So we talked about with Caitlin's mom, Molly really did try to get Angeline back over the next couple of years. Right. But there were issues with courts and social workers. and. There was a lot of question about whether or not Molly was actually complying with the conditions she was supposed to in order to regain custody of Angeline. And so just all of these things kind of compounded in delaying the process and just keeping Molly from getting custody back of Angeline. So eventually, Molly's mom, 
who I'm going to refer to as Grandma Nelson, she got involved eventually and she had to go through this just super grueling process, but she was able to earn the right to care for Angeline. And so thankfully, Angeline was taken out of foster care at the age of three. So just a tiny ray glimmer. Little ray of sunshine and hope. There's always that little ray of hope in these cases. You just get a little hopeful. I wish that there was more ability to keep them with family rather than put them in the foster care system. Obviously, that's not always possible and it's not always the case, but I just wish that we could talk about that more and have that happen more. Yeah. So according to Grandma Nelson, Angeline was less affectionate and more withdrawn when she came to live with her. She grew up with her mom and then she was taken away from her for a couple years and then she went to live with her grandma. All of this is happening before she's even five. And it's just, it's a lot of trauma. And when you're that young, you don't even know what trauma is. Oh yeah, no. And let alone how to process it. So then of course it gets worse because Angeline told her grandma that her foster parents forced her to eat her own vomit after she threw up during a meal. The fuck? What? Exactly. Why? What that that's so cruel and unusual. Why would you make a child why would why? Exactly. So Grandma Nelson was obviously just heartbroken to hear this and just Yeah. I think I didn't read this anywhere, but I can only imagine she felt guilty for not being able to step in sooner. Right. So it just I'm glad that Angeline was eventually able to go live with her, but obviously there was still trauma that she had to endure in order to get to that point, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. So despite her difficult early childhood, Angeline was able to thrive when it came to playing sports. She loved all sports, but a true Canadian, she truly enjoyed playing hockey. Oh, she loves the pocket. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. I had to. I had to. It came out. I couldn't stop it. <laughs> no, it's so funny. When I read this, I was like, oh my gosh, this is peak Canadian right here. This has to be peak Canadian. Peak Canadian. <laughs> peak Canadian status. A thousand percent. So she loved playing hockey, really good at it. Unfortunately, her sports skills didn't translate to the academic side of things. Uh, it, fair. It wasn't that she wasn't smart or intelligent. It was more that she was disruptive in the classroom. Mm, okay. I think more of kind of the, the social pieces of school not being able to deal with versus the intelligence part. And so she ended up dropping out and she didn't graduate high school. One of Angeline's aunts actually suspected that Angeline had been sexually abused based on some of the things that Angeline would say, but Angeline never really provided any specific details, but based on the physical and emotional abuse that she kind of described earlier, it unfortunately wouldn't be surprising if that happened. Yeah. And given just this uh, vicious cycle of abuse that 
has been passed on generation and generation, unfortunately. I'm also in that same boat of I wouldn't be surprised, which in and of itself is messed up to say, but I get it. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think that I I obviously don't know this for sure, but her aunts were probably exposed to similar kinds of situations. If not amongst themselves and their family, they probably had friends who had similar stories. I think that they could see the signs better than maybe somebody on the outside could. So Angeline had all this trauma that we've talked about and her mother and her grandparents, she started drinking heavily as a teenager. She was in and out of relationships and she eventually got pregnant by a man named Daryl Stouffer. Their relationship was described as rocky, but it was actually Angeline who was the abuser in the relationship. Okay. Okay. So this was soup. This is one of the reasons I wanted to cover this case is because one, I think a lot of times people don't think that males can be abused, but two, it's interest. It's kind of just an interesting layer on top of everything else that we're discussing. It's obviously not out of the realm of possibility that females can be the abusers in the relationship. But it's also not as talked about as much, right? I mean, the previous two cases we've talked about, it's the woman that was attacked or abused or neglected in some way, shape, or form. It's interesting to talk about the flip side of things for once, right? Yeah, and I think it's really interesting to think about the trauma that she had and how instead of making her kind of, I mean, she's she's still a victim of other things, but in this case, she's become more of the aggressor in yeah. the abusive context yeah. rather than the victim. So in 2004, she went to jail on an assault charge and were, was released shortly before her son, Daryl Jr., was born. She returned to the Quaxino Reserve after her release, and they found her a place to live with Daryl Jr. that was close to Grandma Nelson and some of her other family members. So at least in my mind, that's a super good deal. Yeah. She's she's with support system. Yeah. She has this baby. I, yeah. I don't think I ever found out how old she was exactly, but she was either a teenager or early 20s max. She wasn't old she enough was, to really yeah. be taking she was a young baby mom. by herself. Yeah. Yeah. So it's good that she's surrounded by family and a community that could kind of help her get on her feet and really be potentially the best mom for that child. Right. Right. So I think it was I think it was her grandma that kind of helped facilitate getting her that place to live with her son so that they would all kind of be together and supporting her. Unfortunately, when Daryl was around, Daryl Jr. was around three years old, he went to live with his dad. And I didn't really find any explanation as to why the custody shifted. But Angeline never challenged that custody custody arrangement. And so according to her aunt, she just kind of gave up. She, her, her aunt would say, quote, she gave up her house and gave away her stuff and walked away. She just felt overwhelmed. 
There was nowhere to turn and nobody to help her. She said there was no use having a home if she didn't have a son, end quote. I'm wondering if she's going through postpartum or even just another kind of depression of sorts. It's very much that I don't care anymore. What's the point? That kind of response that you, that response or that kind of thinking pattern that you do see in someone that is struggling with depression or at least with a negative thinking pattern that is not easily being challenged internally, right? Right. And I think too, it would be a lot more clear if we knew a little bit more information about why he went to live with his dad. But obviously, we don't have that information. Yeah. that's And so, but I think you said, regardless of kind of what the why, it makes sense that if you have now had your son taken away from you, okay, I mean, what is the point of having this yeah. house if he's not here? All these things. So she gives all that up and her son moved to Alert Bay with his dad. And Grandma Nelson remained on the reserve, which is near Port Hardy. But Angeline ended up moving to Cal- to California, to Vancouver. <laughs> Plot twist. <laughs> she said, fuck Canada. I'm going to California. Oh, my God. I mean, I've also been there mentally, too. I've <laughs> I've thought about it. I'm not oh, going to lie. But yeah, apologies. I get it. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. We, we needed needed that laugh break. Exactly. So she moves to Vancouver. And part of this was because there was a court order that prevented her from coming onto the reserve. And so now that I'm talking about this, it's possible that maybe there was some kind of altercation, not necessarily with her son, but near her son or her son was there uh, or something. and Which is considered a form of abuse, right? Allowing a child to be in an area or say a home where there is family violence happening is considered, I know, because I actually was just reading in this today for another case I'm covering after this one comes out. Based on the Canadian Red Cross, witnessing family violence is a form of child abuse. So that that could be, that could be. I think that just makes sense to what yeah, you see so often. Out. Yeah, it. so I definitely think that that possibly played a role in why she no longer had her son. Obviously, she's not allowed to stay on the reserve. She goes to Vancouver, and in December 2010, she was convicted on three counts of assault. These related back to a June 2009 incident that occurred on the reserve, but started off as taunting between Angeline and another woman, quickly escalated into an alcohol-fueled brawl during which Angeline punched the woman in the head. Oh, Angeline. Not a a good move. Not a good move. Not to be judgmental, but not a good move. And I think, unfortunately, she... Everybody has such a wide spectrum when they drink of how they act and unfortunately I think that alcohol brought out the more aggressive mean violent side of her yeah and so because it's I mean as we kind of go through these things alcohol tends to be involved and so for me that's kind of 
not not trying to blame that on her actions, but no, but I think when you're inhibited, you're inhibited by that, and it's bringing out this negative quality in you. It's going to cause you to act a certain way, and all of that. So yeah. So after she moved to Vancouver, Angeline started dating a man named Robert Calden, who she met online. They ended up getting engaged, and they lived together in an apartment in North Vancouver. Calden was a SoTow native, and he was also a senior youth worker for the Squamish Nation. Oh, wow. Okay. So he actually was Indigenous. Wow. Cool. Okay. So shortly before her disappearance, Angeline and Calden got into a fight near the North Vancouver terminal for the Seabus passenger ferry. It was a physical enough fight that it drew police attention in the area. The couple were was questioned and Calden ended up getting arrested. So we often see in domestic violence cases, Angeline declined to make a statement against Calden. So the charges were stayed. But Calden ended up sp- spending the night in jail, which I think is is still pretty typical yeah just separate the two for the evening kind of a thing them cool off before they reconnect and kind of touch base with one another I think that's fair exactly so they are separated at this point and Angeline was texting one of her friends about the altercation she told this friend that she was going to quote change put on some makeup and head back to downtown Vancouver end quote so this Unfortunately, sounds a prepaid phone because Angeline said that her phone was low on minutes, so she couldn't actually call the friend. She could only text. Interesting. Not okay. super important, but just in something, terms of like being yeah. able to track it or something later on. Obviously, yeah. burner phones, pay-as-you-go phones don't really have that capability. So. Around the time that the Angeline and her friend were texting, she also posted a photo of her split lip on Facebook, which was obviously super upsetting to her family and friends who are seeing yeah. this photo. Yeah. And it wasn't quite clear to me. I I don't know that her family, I think her friends may have known, but I don't know that her family knew about any potential abuse with this particular person, her fiance. Because I, they weren't super far away from each other, but they were enough removed that they didn't see her every day. Right. Uh, so at the time of the altercation in May of 2011, Angeline was under two conditional sentence orders. And one was related to the assault convictions from 2010 when she was on the reserve and got into that altercation with the woman. And the second was related to a completely different assault of her fiance. So some of the conditions that Angeline had to abide by under this conditional sentence were that she had a 9 p.m. curfew and she was banned from drinking alcohol, which I don't think she was complying with, but. Well, it's easier said than done. (laughs) Yes. Right? Yes. Okay. And. I mean, it's 
obviously you have to test her, but if she's not getting in a car and driving, if she's not someone who drives around a lot, are you really going to just go out and breathalyze her all the time? It just doesn't seem that's valuable. Yeah, it's one of those conditions that I think needs to be updated in the sense of you can't drink outside of the home or you can't drink and then leave the house. What I mean, I, I think that there needs to be some updating to that because that condition could so you're basically putting the bar so high for somebody especially somebody that has an addiction to that right it's you're setting them up to fail and I think that's the super important key is that when you have an addiction it isn't as simple as oh I'll just not drink and that'll be that it's after my 9 p.m curfew yep exactly no (laughs) So after this altercation that they had, her fiance is in jail, cooling off. They know where he is. He's doing his thing. The RCMP go to Angeline's apartment around 1030. And they wanted to make sure that she was abiding by this curfew. So at 1030, she should be in her apartment. And they performed what they called five sets of loud knocks to get Angeline's attention. If she was awake or sleeping, whatever, no one answered the door. So a few days later, on May 25th, a warrant was issued for Angeline's arrest for breaching the conditions of the orders that I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it was that knock when they went to go execute or go talk to her they kind of assumed she wasn't there because they knocked loudly and made their yeah. presence known or whatever, and she didn't yeah. answer. I'm not a super deep sleeper, so I don't know, but I think that some people are probably deep enough sleepers to where they might not wake up, yeah, even if you were true. loudly knocking. Well, yeah, especially if you're on medication or anything, right? Or you're in a drunk sleep. I don't Yeah. Sometimes, yeah, I've gone to bed intoxicated and I haven't heard anything after that, right? It's a good sleep sometimes. It's a good ass sleep. So I get it. Five loud knocks might not have necessarily woken us up. So So police went to her apartment to execute the warrant. But when they got there... Only her fiance was in the apartment. So this is obviously a couple of days after he had been arrested. Right. He had been let go. Okay. He was free to come home. There were really no charges pending because she wasn't going to make a statement. So right. he was in the apartment, but he said Angeline was on the phone with him. So one of the officers got onto the phone and Angeline told him she was, quote unquote, no longer in the area. That's sus as hell. <laughs> yeah. So, and not what you should say to an officer. <laughs> yeah. So not great. Not great. And obviously the RCMP encouraged her to turn herself in, but no one has heard from Angeline since that day. So Stop. that's May 25th, 2011. Holy shit. And I, I say that that not a good response to RCMP that was maybe a little bit of a, I don't know, a judgment of my end. So I apologize. If I didn't want to be found, maybe that's also something I would say too, right? Or if I was told that's what I needed to say. And I think I read somewhere, I don't know if I included it in here, but it 
it wasn't snarky or anything. It almost was, oh, I'm not where I can actually come talk to you or turn myself in or whatever it is. I can't do it right at this second kind of a thing. Unfortunately, there wasn't an immediate cause for concern when no one had heard from Angeline because she was right to kind of leave abruptly. Right. So interestingly, her family hopes that she was just on the road with the traveling carnival that she'd previously worked for during the okay. summer. Yeah. When you said traveling just- carnival, I was like, excuse me? <laughs> I know, We're still right? using that? As a as a potential? <laughs> no, no. She had ju- she had worked for them previously, but Angeline's mom left messages for her at the shelter that she knew she frequented, and then the Carnegie Center was, which is an organization that kind of helps victims of domestic violence, and right. I think it kind of works in conjunction with the shelter. And none of those messages were returned, and that's when the family got concerned because they figured that at least the shelter and that Carnegie Center would have had some kind of contact with her or been able to contact right. her, her former roommate, all right. of that. Three months after Angeline disappeared, the North Vancouver RCMP opened a file on her. Three months? Very quick action. Yep. Mm-hmm. So quick. Yeah. So I'm thinking that that really only happened because of the next thing I'm going to tell you. Oh, okay. So an inquiry was submitted by the news outlet, the Globe and the Ma- the Globe and Mail. And so the RCMP outlined all the actions they took to try and find Angeline between late May and August of 2011. Okay. So this is what they're telling the Globe and Mail. On June 20th, a note was added to the file that Angeline might be in Alberta. Super unclear why the RCMP thought that. Okay. So there wasn't any indication... Yeah, I I don't know if they were confusing this with Caitlin's case or, I mean, I guess Caitlin's case actually hadn't happened yet. So maybe. True. Maybe that, maybe that. But still, but yeah. But I mean, just. Yeah. Come on, people. Yeah, man. So on July 1st and July 25th, the North Vancouver RCMP asked the Alberta RCMP to check their databases for Angeline. And in between those two dates, the RCMP interviewed Angeline's former employer, and went to various banks and government agencies, I assume, to check on her bank accounts and any government assistance that she might be receiving, which right. is something I, I see a lot in these cases. If there's a welfare yep. check or something that if they see that the check's being cashed or it's being collected just to throw shade, the RCMP is probably going to be, oh, they're fine. Yeah, they're going to they're not going to speculate anything further than, oh, they're cashing it their is check. what it is. Yeah. yeah, they're cashing their checks. It is they what just, it is. Yeah, they don't want... You'd find them. Whatever. So on August 16th, the first public missing persons alert was issued. Again, this is a couple months after she was last seen. Then in October of 2011, her case was transferred to the Serious Crimes Unit. And this was almost six months after she was last seen. So, yeah, that's that's a long time. That's a long time. Yeah. I mean, it's in your case. Maybe somebody remembers something from 27 years ago, but yeah, what were you doing 27 years ago in your investigation to try to speak to whoever you needed to speak to? Yeah. That's why you have the interviews that you conduct and these people that you talk to and the door knocking that you go do because if you want the best case scenario for that. It's talking to them almost immediately after it happened because it's so fresh in your mind. Isn't it usually within the first 48, that's when you're going to get the most critical 
information because it's still so fresh. And usually within the first 48 is kind of the safety net for people to be located or for progression to happen in a case or someone to be found. Yeah. Yeah. And it's six months later. I mean, maybe somebody remembers something, but if you're looking for any kind of surveillance, that's going to be long gone. Yeah. Oh, I, I don't obviously know this for sure, but in so many cases, I read about the fact that most people just record over after a certain point. It's not even that they delete it. It just, they use the same tape or whatever it is. Yeah. It just records and resets itself basically after a certain period of time. And so if they don't know that you're looking for that or that you want that information, they're not going to stop and be like, oh, let me just save this real quick. They don't yeah. have any intel or notion to do that unless already asked by police to do that, right? Exactly. So according to the RCMP, they've received over 100 tips and several locations have been searched, but it's unclear where exactly those locations are because they've also said that there's no quote-unquote resoundingly obvious location to search. What? So in my mind, it's, well, which is it? Wouldn't you look back at her history and just look at all the hot spots? Yeah. Where she last lived, where she lived before that, workplace, friends, family. Wouldn't you look at the hot spots? And I, obviously, you can tell the police whatever you want, but did you ask where she was when you yeah. talked to her on the phone or where she was planning to be? You just yeah. took her at her word that she's not in the area. What does that even mean? Well, and not only that, too, but could they not trace the call? I mean, I don't know the fine details of call tracing. So I don't I don't know if that could have been done or if it could still be backlogged and retrace. I don't know. I don't know if it's the same as finding an IP address, but it has to be an option. And it almost seems too. Why wouldn't you do it in this case? Because even before she went missing, she had this warrant out for her arrest. So at the very least, don't you want to find her for that purpose? Exactly. It just doesn't you make know, sense. Like, if you don't care about her as just a missing person in general, why do you not care about, oh, hey, we have this person with an active warrant on them. Maybe we should just run this call to be, oh, where is she? In case she doesn't turn herself in. Yep. So Calden moved out of that apartment after Angeline's disappearance. The RCMP say he's been questioned, he's submitted a polygraph test, and he's cooperated with their investigation. It's super clear that her family believes that Calden is involved somehow, but it doesn't appear that the RCMP has ever publicly named him as a suspect. Interesting. Okay. So, and I think a lot of that from the family's perspective is the history of abuse and just kind of volatile relationship that they had. So Angeline's case is currently classified as a missing persons investigation with foul play suspected. Essentially, they've kind of presumed that she was the victim of foul play. Right. They suspect that she's more than likely deceased, unfortunately. Correct. So there have been some alleged sightings that I kind of alluded to in Port Hardy, Grand Prairie, and Kamloops. But again, investigators weren't able to corroborate any of these sightings. And so it just never really led anywhere. If you can't right. corroborate it, you can't really confirm. Yeah, Obviously, exactly. they didn't find her looking in those areas. So sadly, Angeline's mother, Molly, died of a heart attack in 2017. Oh. 
So she never found out what happened to her daughter. And Angeline's son, Daryl Jr., according to one of the articles I read, he last saw his mom in April of 2011, so about a month before she went missing. She brought him a Detroit Red Wings jersey, which is his favorite hockey team. Oh. And according to Daryl Sr., his dad, Jr. loves playing hockey, just both of his parents. And the most heartbreaking thing that I read for this case and probably any case I've covered more recently is that Daryl Jr. wants to play hockey so that, quote, if he gets famous, his mom will find him, end quote. That breaks my fucking heart. Oh, yeah, that that tugs at the heartstrings. I mean, yeah, I it's already a sad case, but that piece of information, it's oof, oof. And it just it makes me so sad because there's clearly clearly she was a good mom and she loved him and she showed him that love because he wouldn't say something that otherwise. Very true. And just not to have answers for him is so heartbreaking. There's got to be some little piece in his mind that just thinks she went off and she doesn't care about me. She doesn't love me. She just abandoned me. And I I hope that's not the case. I don't really think that that's the case. But it makes me so sad that there's probably a little voice in his head that says that. And exactly. So, yeah. So Angeline has a butterfly tattoo on her chest. She has a scar on her left knee and a birthmark on her left wrist. There's a $5,000 reward being offered for information in Angeline's case. And if you have any information on the disappearance of Angeline Pete, please call the North Vancouver RCMP at 604-985-1311 or the Quatsino Band Council at 250-949-6245. Wow. Well, thank you for bringing light to those cases because once again, I hadn't heard of either of those cases. And I'm hoping with all three of the cases we discussed, plus the information you provided, people listening can take that information, educate themselves further, and who knows, maybe something can come out for all three of them. I hope so. We'll obviously put all of the information in our show notes. For sure. So that you can find that easily accessible. And yeah, I mean, just listen, share them. Just because you think something isn't important, it's you don't know what the police and investigators are going to think is important. And so anything that should be shared because you you just can't know. They don't share every piece of the case with us. And so we can't possibly know what's going to be important to them. I, I would really encourage, I mean, it's just in all cases too, if you see something, say something. But especially in these cases that just don't get the coverage that other cases do, it really is going to take somebody coming forward especially in our missing person cases, because they're just, there's no closure. It's so yeah. hard to live. If you want to rewind back to all those phone numbers we've mentioned, we'll also post them in the show notes. And just want to say thank you, Elise, for educating me on those cases and bringing your information to this episode. And of course, for agreeing to come back on with me and doing this collaboration. And I think from the both of us, we just want to thank everybody for tuning in. Hopefully we've done some justice in talking about these cases and you never know, maybe we'll do this again and talk about some other missing and murdered Indigenous women cases down the road. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, we look forward to doing this again in the future. <laughs>
If you've enjoyed today's Weird Distractions episode, please consider telling your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else who will listen about the show. You can tell them to find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, Google Podcasts, Podchaser, and many more. If you're streaming the show on Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review. This helps the show out for free by letting others know that it's worth listening to. Another way to support the show for free and to never miss an update is to follow along on the show's various social media accounts. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. My handle is at WeirdDistractI1 and TikTok. If you want to financially support the show and get yourself a little something extra each month, why not join one of the two tiers over on Patreon? Each month you get exclusive content such as bonus episodes and series, the Weird Destinations travel posts, plus early access to the regular feed episodes. You can find out which tier is best suited for you by going to patreon.com slash podcast. Shout out to my current patrons, aka my weird little family members, Tom, Bailey, Angela, John, Alicia, Lynn, Sissy, Shadow, Courtney, and Cheryl. I love you all and appreciate your ongoing support of Weird Distractions. If you're unable to support the show on a monthly basis, but still want to support it maybe as a one-time donation, check out the show's merch over on Redbubble or sign up for a one-time donation over on Buy Me a Coffee. Lastly, I want to hear from you. As some longtime listeners may recall, Christy and I released two listener story-based episodes called Listener Distractions. I'd love to keep doing this series and hear all of your weird tales of ghostly encounters, unexplainable events, and too close to home true crime stories. You can email me your tales at weirddistractionspodcast at outlook.com. As well, send me feedback. If there are any corrections that need to be made after today's episode, let me know. And as always, if you need a distraction, I got you. Bye. Bye.